I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apiango Line. Today, we're joined by Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapesky, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormke, all members of the Apiango Readers Theatre, and all here with a show to help you celebrate and appreciate the goodness of spring. Our show is titled O. Henry's Spring Thaw, and it's made up of five short stories written by one of the great short story writers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Born William Sidney Porter in 1862, he died a relatively young man in 1910 and was famously known far and wide under his assumed pen name, O. Henry. Before he left this good earth, O. Henry created some of the most memorable characters and curious situations ever conceived in a short story. Many listeners, of course, know O. Henry as the author of that famous Christmas short story, Gift of the Magi, a short story we've already podcast here on the Apiango line a number of Christmases ago. Indeed, in his life as a professional writer of nearly 600 short stories, O. Henry almost always was a man who saw his glass half full instead of half empty. Unlike T.S. Eliot, for instance, that wonderfully somber Nobel Prize winning poet of supreme talent. When it came to things like spring, well, old T.S. was a tad tragic. His glass, so to speak, seemed always near empty. Listen, for instance, how Mr. Eliot opens his most famous poem of the 20th century, The Wasteland. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. That might be great poetry, but Mr. Eliot was no O. Henry. Take a listen instead over the next hour and hear how William Sidney Porter saw, felt, and wrote about spring. We have five short stories for you today, all set in or about the cruelest of months, April, and all full of a wonderfully comedic sense of rich, vibrant life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here's the first one read by Leslie Betts. It's called By Courier. It was neither the season nor the hour when the park had frequenters. And it is likely that the young lady, who was seated on one of the benches at the side of the walk, had merely obeyed a sudden impulse to sit for a while and enjoy a foretaste of coming spring. She rested there, pensive and still. A certain melancholy that touched her countenance must have been of recent birth, for it had not yet altered the fine and youthful contours of her cheek nor subdued the arch, though resolute, curve of her lips. A tall young man came striding through the park along the path near which she sat. Behind him tagged a boy carrying a suitcase. At sight of the young lady, the man's face changed to red and back to pale again. He watched her countenance as he drew nearer, with hope and anxiety mingled on his own. He passed within a few yards of her, but he saw no evidence that she was aware of his presence or existence. Some fifty yards further on, he suddenly stopped and sat on a bench at one side. The boy dropped the suitcase and stared at him with wondering shrewd eyes. The young man took out his handkerchief and wiped his brow. It was a good handkerchief, a good brow, 
and the young man was good to look at. He said to the boy, I want you to take a message to that young lady on that bench. Tell her I'm on my way to the station to leave for San Francisco, where I shall join that Alaska moose hunting expedition. Tell her that, since she has commanded me neither to speak nor to write to her, I take this means of making one last appeal to her sense of justice for the sake of what has been. Tell her that to condemn and discard one who has not deserved such treatment, without giving him her reasons or a chance to explain, is contrary to her nature as I believe it to be. Tell her that I have thus to a certain degree disobeyed her injunctions in the hope that she may yet be inclined to see justice done. Go and tell her that. The young man dropped a half dollar into the boy's hand. The boy looked at him for a moment with bright canny eyes out of a dirty intelligent face and then set off at a run. He approached the lady on the bench a little doubtfully, but unembarrassed. He touched the brim of the old plaid bicycle cap perched on the back of his head. The lady looked at him coolly without prejudice or favor. Lady, he said, that gent on the other bench sent you a song and dance by me. If you don't know the guy and he's trying to do the Johnny act, say the word and I'll call a cop in three minutes. If you does know him and he's on the square, why, I'll spill you a bunch of hot air he sent you. The young lady betrayed a faint interest. A song and dance, she said, in a deliberate sweet voice that seemed to clothe her words in a diaphanous garment of impalpable irony. A new idea in the troubadour line, I suppose. I used to know the gentleman who sent you, so I think it will hardly be necessary to call the police. You may execute your song and dance, but do not sing too loudly. It is a little early yet for open-air vaudeville, and we might attract attention. Ah, said the boy with a shrug down the length of him. You know what I mean, lady. Tainted turn, it's wind. He told me to tell you he's got collars and cuffs in that grip for a scoop clean out to Frisco. Then he's going to shoot snowbirds into Klondike. He says you told him not to send round no more pink notes, nor come hanging over the garden gate. And he takes this means of putting you wise. He says you refereed him out like a has-been and never give him no chance to kick at the decision. He says you swiped him and never said why. The slightly awakened interest in the young lady's eyes did not abate. Perhaps it was caused by either the originality or the audacity of the snowbird hunter in thus circumventing her express commands against the ordinary modes of communication. She fixed her eye on a statue standing disconsolate in the disheveled park and spoke into the transmitter. Tell the gentleman that I need not repeat to him a description of my ideals. He knows what they have been and what they still are. So far as they touch on this case, absolute loyalty and truth are the ones paramount. Tell him that I have studied my own heart as well as one can, and I know its weakness as well as I do its needs. This is why I decline to hear his pleas, whatever they may be. I did not condemn him through hearsay or doubtful evidence, and that is why I made no charge. But since he persists in hearing what he already knows, you may convey the matter. Tell him that I entered the conservatory that evening from the rear to cut a rose for my mother. Tell him I saw him and Miss Ashburton beneath the pink oleander. 
The tableau was pretty, but the pose and juxtaposition were too eloquent and evident to require explanation. I left the conservatory, and at the same time the rose and my ideal. You may carry that song and dance to your impresario. I'm shy on one word, lady. Jux, jux, put me wise on that, will you? Juxtaposition, or you may call it propinquity. Or, if you like, being rather too near for one maintaining the position of an ideal. The gravel spun from beneath the boy's feet. He stood by the other bench. The man's eyes interrogated him hungrily. The boys were shining with the impersonal zeal of the translator. De lady says to cheese on to the fact that gals is dead easy when a feller comes spilling ghost stories and trying to make up. And that's why she won't listen to no soft soap. She says she caught you dead to rights hugging a bunch of calico in the hothouse. She sidestepped in to pull some posies and you're with squeezing the other gal to beat the band. She says it looked cute all right, all right, but it made her sick. She says you better get busy and make a sneak for the train. The young man gave a low whistle and his eyes flashed with a sudden thought. His hand flew to the inside pocket of his coat and drew out a handful of letters. Selecting one, he handed it to the boy, following it with a silver dollar from his vest pocket. Give that letter to the lady, he said, and ask her to read it. Tell her that it should explain the situation. Tell her that if she had mingled a little trust with her conception of the ideal, much heartache might have been avoided. Tell her that the loyalty she prizes so much was never wavered. Tell her I am waiting for an answer. The messenger stood before the lady. DeGent says he's had the ski bung put on him without no cause. He says he's no bum guy. And lady, you read that letter and I'll bet you he's a white sport all right. The young lady unfolded the letter, somewhat doubtfully, and read it. Dear Dr. Arnold, I want to thank you for your most kind and opportune aid to my daughter last Friday evening when she was overcome by an attack of her old heart trouble in the conservatory at Mrs. Waldron's reception. Had you not been near to catch her as she fell and to render proper attention, we might have lost her. I would be glad if you would call and undertake the treatment of her case. Gratefully yours, Robert Ashburton. The young lady refolded the letter and handed it to the boy. DeGent wants an answer, said the messenger. What's the word? The lady's eyes suddenly flashed on him, bright, smiling, and wet. Tell that guy on the other bench, she said with a happy, tremulous laugh, that his girl wants him. See what we mean? There's just something well uplifting about O. Henry. He's not denying Mr. Elliot's somewhat sad and tragic idea that April can be a very cruel month, indeed, but O. Henry's characters, well, they just seem to overcome cruelty, if not the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and somehow salvage happiness, if only sometimes, by the skin of their teeth. Imagine poor Dr. Arnold almost ended up in the Klondike, a bachelor moose hunting in the dead of winter. <laughs> Brr, shiver me timbers. And it might suit Mr. Elliot's poetic purpose to have us believe that life turns out like that every April, full of all that sad, sad stuff. But we think O'Henry might beg to differ. 
Here's another one of his springtime stories read by Mark Wormke. It's called Spring a la Carte. It was a day in March. Never, never begin a story this way when you write one. No opening could possibly be worse. It is unimaginative, flat, dry, and likely to consist of mere wind. But in this instance, it is allowable. For the following paragraph, which should have inaugurated the narrative, is too wildly extravagant and preposterous to be flaunted in the face of the reader without preparation. Sarah was crying over her bill of fare. Think of a New York girl shedding tears on the menu card. To account for this, you will be allowed to guess that the lobsters were all out, or that she had sworn ice cream off during Lent, or that she had ordered onions, or that she had just come from a Hackett matinee. And then all these theories being wrong, you will please let the story proceed. The gentleman who announced that the world was an oyster, which he with his sword would open, made a larger hit than he deserved. It is not difficult to open an oyster with a sword. But did you ever notice anyone try to open the terrestrial bivalve with a typewriter? Like to wait for a dozen raw open that way? Sarah had managed to pry apart the shells with her unhandy weapon far enough to nibble a wee bit at the cold and clammy world within. She knew no more shorthand than if she had been a graduate in stenography just let slip upon the world by a business college. So not being able to stenog, she could not enter that bright galaxy of office talent. She was a freelance typewriter and canvassed for odd jobs of copying. The most brilliant and crowning feat of Sarah's battle with the world was the deal she made with Schulenberg's home restaurant. The restaurant was next to the old red brick in which she hall-roomed. One evening after dinner at Schulenberg's 40-cent five-course table d'hote, served as fast as you can throw the five baseballs at the gentleman's head, Sarah took away with her the bill of fare. It was written in an almost unreadable script, neither English nor German, and so arranged that if you were not careful, you began with a toothpick and rice pudding and ended up with soup and the day of the week. The next day, Sarah showed Schulenberg a neat card in which the menu was beautifully typewritten with the viands temptingly marshaled under their right and proper heads from hors d'oeuvre to not responsible for overcoats and umbrellas. Schulenberg became a naturalized citizen on the spot. Before Sarah left him, she had him willingly committed to an agreement. She was to furnish typewritten bills of fare for the 21 tables in the restaurant, a new bill for each day's dinner, and new ones for breakfast and lunch as often as changes occurred in the food or as neatness required. In return for this, Schulenberg was to send three meals per diem to Sarah's hall room by a waiter, an obsequious one if possible, and furnish her each afternoon with a pencil draft of what fate had in store for Schulenberg's customers on the morrow. Mutual satisfaction resulted from the agreement. Schulenberg's patrons now knew what the food they ate was called, even if its nature sometimes puzzled them, and Sarah had food during a cold, dull winter, which was the main thing with her. And then the almanac lied and said that spring had come. Spring comes when it comes. The frozen snows of January still lay like adamant in the crosstown streets. The hand organs still played in the good old summertime with their December vivacity and expression. Men began to make 30-day notes to buy Easter dresses. Janitors shut off steam. And when these things happen, one may know that the city is still in the clutches of winter. 
One afternoon, Sarah shivered in her elegant hall bedroom. House heated, scrupulously clean, conveniences seemed to be appreciated. She had no work to do except Schulenberg's menu cards. Sarah sat in her squeaky willow rocker and looked out the window. The calendar on the wall kept crying to her. Springtime is here, Sarah. Springtime is here, I tell you. Look at me, Sarah. My figures show it. You've got a neat figure yourself, Sarah. A nice springtime figure. Why do you look out the window so sadly? Sarah's room was at the back of the house. Looking out the window, she could see the windowless rear brick wall of the box factory on the next street. But the wall was clear as crystal, and Sarah was looking down a grassy lane shaded with cherry trees and elms and bordered with raspberry bushes and Cherokee roses. Spring's real harbingers are too subtle for the eye and ear. Some must have the flowering crocus, the wood-starring dogwood, the voice of bluebird, even so gross a reminder is the farewell handshake of the retiring buckwheat and oyster before they can welcome the lady in green to their dull bosoms. But to old earth's choicest kin there come straight sweet messages from his newest bride, telling them they shall be no stepchildren unless they choose to be. On the previous summer, Sarah had gone into the country and loved a farmer. In writing your story, never hark back thus. It is bad art and cripples interest. Let it march, march. Sarah stayed two weeks at Sunnybrook Farm. There she learned to love old farmer Franklin's son, Walter. Farmers have been loved and wedded and turned out to grass in less time, but young Walter Franklin was a modern agriculturalist. He had a telephone in his cowhouse, and he could figure up exactly what effect next year's Canada wheat crop would have on potatoes planted in the dark of the moon. It was in this shaded and raspberried lane that Walter had wooed and won her. And together they had sat and woven a crown of dandelions for her hair. He had a moderately praised the effect of the yellow blossoms against her brown tresses, and she had left the chaplet there and walked back to the house, swinging her straw sailor in her hands. They were to marry in the spring, at the very first signs of spring, Walter said, and Sarah came back to the city to pound her typewriter. A knock at the door dispelled Sarah's visions of that happy day. A waiter had brought the rough pencil draft of the home restaurant's next day fare in old Schulenberg's angular hand. Sarah sat down to her typewriter and slipped a card between the rollers. She was a nimble worker. Generally, in an hour and a half, the 21 menu cards were written and ready. Today, there were more changes on the bill of fare than usual. The soups were lighter, pork was eliminated from the entrees, figuring only with Russian turnips among the roasts. The gracious spirit of spring pervaded the entire menu. Lamb that lately capered on the greening hillsides was becoming exploited with the sauce that commemorated its gambols. The song of the oyster, though not silenced, was diminuendo con amore. The frying pan seemed to be held inactive behind the beneficent bars of the broiler. The pie list swelled, the richer puddings had vanished. The sausage, with his drapery wrapped about him, barely lingered in a pleasant thanatopsis with the buckwheats and the sweet but doomed maple. Sarah's fingers danced like midges above a summer stream. Down through the courses she worked, giving each item its position according to its length with an accurate eye. Just above the desserts came the list of vegetables. 
carrots and peas, asparagus on toast, the perennial tomatoes and corn, and succotash, lima beans, cabbage, and then... Sarah was crying all over her bill of fare. Tears from the depths of some divine despair rose in her heart and gathered to her eyes. Down went her head on the little typewriter stand, and the keyboard rattled a dry accompaniment to her moist sobs. For she had received no letter from Walter in two weeks, and the next item on the bill of fare was dandelions. Dandelions with some kind of egg. But bother the egg. Dandelions with whose golden blooms Walter had crowned her his queen of love and future bride. Dandelions, the harbingers of spring, her sorrow's crown of sorrow, reminder of her happiest days. Madam, I dare you to smile until you suffer this test. Lest the Maréchal Niel roses that Percy bought you on the night you gave him your heart be served as a salad with French dressing before your eyes and a Schulenberg table d'hote. Had Juliet so seen her love tokens dishonored, the sooner would she have sought the Lethean herbs of the good apothecary. But what a witch's spring! Into the great cold city of stone and iron, the message had to be sent. There was none to convey it but the little hardy courier of the fields with his rough green coat and modest air. He is a true soldier of fortune, this Don de Lyon, this lion's tooth as the French chefs call him. Flowered, he will assist at lovemaking, wreathed in my lady's nut-brown hair. Young and callow and unblossomed, he goes into the boiling pot and delivers the word of his sovereign mistress. By and by, Sarah forced back her tears. The cards must be written, but still in a faint golden glow from her dandelionine dream, she fingered the typewriter keys absently for a little while, with her mind and heart in the meadow lane with her young farmer. But soon she came swiftly back to the rock-bound lanes of Manhattan, and the typewriter began to rattle and jump like a strike-breaker's motor car. At six o'clock, the waiter brought her dinner and carried away the typewritten bill of fare. When Sarah ate, she set aside with a sigh the dish of dandelions with its crowning or various accompaniment. As this dark mass had been transformed from a bright and love-endorsed flower to be an ignominious vegetable, so had her summer hopes wilted and perished. Love may, as Shakespeare said, feed on itself, but Sarah could not bring herself to eat the dandelions that had graced as ornaments the first spiritual banquet of her heart's true affection. At 7.30, the couple in the next room began to quarrel. The man in the room above sought for an A on his flute. The gas went a little lower. Three coal wagons started to unload, the only sound of which the phonograph is jealous. Cats on the back fences slowly retreated toward Mukden. By these signs, Sarah knew that it was time for her to read. She got out The Cloister and the Hearth, the best non-selling book of the month, settled her feet on her trunk, and began to wander with Gerard. The front doorbell rang. The landlady answered it. Sarah left Gerard and Dennis treed by a bear and listened. Oh yes, you would, just as she did. And then a strong voice was heard in the hall below, and Sarah jumped for her door, leaving the book on the floor and the first round easily the bears. You have guessed it. She reached the top of the stairs just as her farmer came up, three at a jump, and reaped and garnered her with nothing left for the gleaners. Why have you not written? Oh, why? cried Sarah. 
New York is a pretty large town, said Walter Franklin. I came in a week ago to your old address. I found that you went away on a Thursday. That consoled some. It eliminated the possibility of Friday bad luck. But it didn't prevent my hunting for you with police and otherwise ever since. I wrote, said Sarah vehemently. Never got it. Then how did you find me? The young farmer smiled a springtime smile. I dropped into that home restaurant next door this evening, said he. I don't care who knows it. I like a dish of some kind of greens at this time of the year. I ran my eye down that nice typewritten bill of fare looking for something in that line. When I got below cabbage, I turned my chair over and hollered for the proprietor. He told me where you lived. I remember, sighed Sarah. That was dandelions below cabbage. I'd know that cranky capital W way above the line that your typewriter makes anywhere in the world, said Franklin. Why, there's no W in dandelions, said Sarah in surprise. The young man drew the bill of fare from his pocket and pointed to a line. Sarah recognized the first card she had typewritten that afternoon. There was still the rayed splotch in the upper right-hand corner where a tear had fallen. But over the spot where one should have read the name of the meadow plant, the clinging memory of their golden blossoms had allowed her fingers to strike strange keys. Between the red cabbage and the stuffed green peppers was the item, Dearest Walter with hard-boiled egg. Again, O. Henry's characters get saved by the skin of their teeth. But how else is young love supposed to be saved? especially in cruel springtime when the young have nothing better to do than go about getting Twitter-pated. And that, curiously, in the first decade of the 20th century, long before Twitter was even invented. Here's another one of our favorite springtime stories written by O. Henry. It's read by Kathy Chapesky and is called The Romance of a Busy Broker. And pay close attention. This indeed is a true springtime love story, complete with a whiff of intoxicating lilacs, and only one that O. Henry could pull off. Pitcher, confidential clerk in the office of Harvey Maxwell, broker, allowed a look of mild interest and surprise to visit his usually expressionless countenance when his employer briskly entered at half-past nine in company with his young lady stenographer. With a snappy, good morning, Pitcher, Maxwell dashed at his desk as though he were intending to leap over it and then plunged into the great heap of letters and telegrams waiting there for him. The young lady had been Maxwell's stenographer for a year. She was beautiful in a way that was decidedly unstenographic. She forewent the pomp of the alluring pompadour. She wore no chains, bracelets or lockets. She had not the air of being about to accept an invitation to luncheon. Her dress was grey and plain, but it fitted her figure with fidelity and discretion. In her neat black turban hat was the gold-green wing of a macaw. On this morning she was softly and shyly radiant. Her eyes were dreamily bright, her cheeks genuine peach blow, her expression a happy one, tinged with reminiscence. Pitcher, still mildly curious, noticed a difference in her ways this morning. Instead of going straight into the adjoining room where her desk was, she lingered, slightly irresolute, in the outer office. Once she moved over by Maxwell's desk, near enough for him to be aware of her presence. 
The machine sitting at that desk was no longer a man. It was a busy New York broker, moved by buzzing wheels and uncoiling springs. Well, what is it? Anything? asked Maxwell sharply. His opened mail lay like a bank of stage snow on his crowded desk. His keen gray eye, impersonal and brusque, flashed upon her half impatiently. Nothing, answered the stenographer, moving away with a little smile. Mr. Pitcher, she said to the confidential clerk, did Mr. Maxwell say anything yesterday about engaging another stenographer? He did, answered Pitcher. He told me to get another one. I notified the agency yesterday afternoon to send over a few samples this morning. It's 9.45 o'clock and not a single picture hat or a piece of pineapple chewing gum has showed up yet. I will do the work as usual then, said the young lady, until someone comes to fill the place. And she went to her desk at once and hung the black turban hat with the gold-green macaw wing in its accustomed place. He who has been denied the spectacle of a busy Manhattan broker during a rush of business is handicapped for the profession of anthropology. The poet sings of the crowded hour of glorious life. The broker's hour is not only crowded, but the minutes and seconds are hanging to all the straps and packing both front and rear platforms. And this day was Harvey Maxwell's busy day. The ticker began to reel out jerkily its fitful coils of tape, The desk telephone had a chronic attack of buzzing. Men began to throng into the office and call at him over the railing, jovially, sharply, viciously, excitedly. Messenger boys ran in and out with messages and telegrams. The clerks in the office jumped about like sailors during a storm. Even Pitcher's face relaxed into something resembling animation. On the exchange, there were hurricanes and landslides and snowstorms and glaciers and volcanoes, and those elemental disturbances were reproduced in miniature in the broker's offices. Maxwell shoved his chair against the wall and transacted business after the manner of a toe dancer. He jumped from ticker to phone, from desk to door, with the trained agility of a harlequin. In the midst of this growing and important stress, The broker became suddenly aware of a high-rolled fringe of golden hair under a nodding canopy of velvet and ostrich tips, an imitation sealskin sack, and a string of beads as large as hickory nuts ending near the floor with a silver heart. There was a self-possessed young lady connected with these accessories, and Pitcher was there to construe her. Lady from the stenographer's agency to see about the position, said Pitcher. Maxwell turned half around with his hands full of papers and ticker tape. What position? he asked with a frown. Position of stenographer, said Pitcher. You told me yesterday to call them up and have one sent over this morning. You are losing your mind, Pitcher, said Maxwell. Why should I have given you any such instructions? Miss Leslie has given perfect satisfaction during the year she has been here. The place is hers as long as she chooses to retain it. There's no place open here, madam. Countermand that order with the agency pitcher and don't bring any more of them in here. The silver heart left the office, swinging and banging itself independently against the office furniture as it indignantly departed. Pitcher seized a moment to remark to the bookkeeper that the old man seemed to get more absent-minded and forgetful every day of the world. The rush and pace of business grew fiercer and faster. On the floor, they were pounding half a dozen stocks in which Maxwell's customers were heavy investors. 
Orders to buy and sell were coming and going as swift as the flight of swallows. Some of his own holdings were imperiled, and the man was working like some high-geared, delicate, strong machine, strung to full tension, going at full speed, accurate, never hesitating, with the proper word and decision and act ready and prompt as clockwork. Stocks and bonds, loans and mortgages, margins and securities. Here was a world of finance, and there was no room in it for the human world or the world of nature. When the luncheon hour drew near, there came a slight lull in the uproar. Maxwell stood by his desk with his hands full of telegrams and memoranda, with a fountain pen over his right ear and his hair hanging in disorderly strings over his forehead. The window was open, for the beloved janitress spring had turned on a little warmth through the waking registers of the earth, and through the window came a wandering, perhaps a lost odour, a delicate sweet odour of lilac that fixed the broker for a moment immovable. For this odour belonged to Miss Leslie. It was her own and hers only. The odour brought her vividly, almost tangibly before him. The world of finance dwindled suddenly to a speck, and she was in the next room, twenty steps away. By George, I'll do it now, said Maxwell half aloud. I'll ask her now. I wonder I didn't do it long ago. He dashed into the inner office with the haste of a short trying to cover. He charged upon the desk of the stenographer. She looked up at him with a smile. A soft pink crept over her cheek, and her eyes were kind and frank. Maxwell leaned one elbow on her desk. He still clutched fluttering papers with both hands, and the pen was above his ear. "'Miss Leslie,' he began hurriedly, "'I have but a moment to spare. I want to say something in that moment.' Will you be my wife? I haven't had time to make love to you in the ordinary way, but I really do love you. Talk quick, please. Those fellows are clubbing the stuffing out of Union Pacific. Oh, what are you talking about? exclaimed the young lady. She rose to her feet and gazed upon him, round-eyed. Don't you understand? said Maxwell restively. I want you to marry me. I love you, Miss Leslie. I wanted to tell you, and I snatched a minute when things had slackened up a bit. They're calling me for the phone now. Tell them to wait a minute, Pitcher. Won't you, Miss Leslie? The stenographer acted very queerly. At first she seemed overcome with amazement. Then tears flowed from her wondering eyes. And then she smiled sunnily through them, and one of her arms slid tenderly about the broker's neck. I know now, she said softly. It's this old business that has driven everything else out of your head for the time. I was frightened at first. Don't you remember, Harvey? We were married last evening at eight o'clock in the little church around the corner. Talk about Twitterpated. Still, even up in the upper Madawaska Valley, we've known more than a few businessmen and women in springtime who seem too busy to stop and smell the roses or coffee or whatever in tarnation seems to be popping up all over the place once spring arrives with, according to Mr. Elliot, all its wanton cruelty. Imagine, a man gets married one day, and a day later he's too busy to remember he got married in the first place. Now that's real springtime cruelty for the poor wife. No, we think O. Henry had it right. Springtime could be a time for horrid cruelty, but somehow love always seems to triumph in his stories. Though we do have to admit, even when love does triumph, 
Mr. Henry certainly remains a shrewd and realistic observer of the human condition. Take his next story. It's living proof that O. Henry often went out of his way to show the cruelty of upholding the laws of the land. In fact, it's wise to remember that O. Henry himself once did spend a few years cooling his jets in a federal penitentiary, apparently over a mix-up involving an alleged embezzlement of some $834. So he might have developed a soft spot for the sort of folks who show up in his next story, read by Lynn Stewart. It's called Sisters of the Golden Circle and is living proof that springtime sometimes does play the odd, cruel April Fool's joke for the benefit of those among us who are young, foolish, a tad criminal, but in love. The rubberneck auto was about ready to start. The merry top riders had been assigned to their seats by the gentlemanly conductor. The sidewalk was blockaded with sightseers who had gathered to stare at sightseers justifying the natural law that every creature on earth is preyed upon by some other creature. The megaphone man raised his instrument of torture. The inside of the great automobile began to thump and throb like the heart of a coffee drinker. The top riders nervously clung to the seats. The old lady from Valparaiso, Indiana, shrieked to be put ashore. But before a wheel turns... Listen to a brief preamble through the cardiophone, which shall point out to you an object of interest on life's sightseeing tour. Swift and comprehensive is the recognition of white man for white man in African wilds. Instant and sure is the spiritual greeting between mother and babe. Unhesitatingly do master and dog commune across the slight gulf between animal and man. Immeasurably quick and sapient are the brief messages between one and one's beloved. But all these instances set forth only slow and groping interchange of sympathy and thought beside one other instance, which the rubberneck coach shall disclose. You shall learn, if you have not learned already, what two beings of all Earth's living inhabitants most quickly look into each other's hearts and souls when they meet face to face. The gong word and the glaring at Gotham car moved majestically upon its instructive tour. On the highest rear seat was James Williams of Cloverdale, Missouri, and his bride. Capitalize it, friend typo, that last word, word of words in the epiphany of life and love. The scent of the flowers, the booty of the bee, the primal drip of spring waters, the overture of the lark, the twist of lemon peel on the cocktail of creation, such is the bride. Holy is the wife revered the mother, Galiptious is the summer girl, but the bride is the certified check among the wedding presents that the gods send in when man is married to mortality. The car glided up the golden way. On the bridge of the great cruiser, the captain stood, trumpeting the sights of the big city to his passengers. Wide-mouthed and open-eared, they heard the sights of the metropolis thundered forth to their eyes. Confused, Delirious with excitement and provincial longings, they tried to make ocular responses to the megaphonic ritual. In the solemn spires of spreading cathedrals, they saw the home of the Vanderbilts. In the busy bulk of the Grand Central Depot, they viewed, wonderingly, the frugal cot of Russell Sage. Bidden to observe the highlands of the Hudson, they gaped, unsuspecting, at the upturned mountains of a new-laid sewer. To many, the elevated railroad was the Rialto, 
on the stations of which uniformed men sat and made chop suey of your tickets. And to this day, in the outlying districts, many have it that Chuck Connors, with his hand on his heart, leads reform, and that but for the noble municipal efforts of one Parkhurst, a district attorney, the notorious Bishop Potter gang would have destroyed law and order from the Bowery to the Harlem River. But I beg you to observe Mrs. James Williams, Hattie Chalmers that was, once the belle of Cloverdale. Pale blue is the bride's, if she will, and this color she had honored. Willingly had the moss rosebud loaned to her cheeks of its pink, and as for the violet, her eyes will do very well as they are, thank you. A useless strip of white chaff, oh, oh no, he was guiding the autocar, of white chiffon, or perhaps it was grenadine or tulle, was tied beneath her chin, pretending to hold her bonnet in place. But you know as well as I do that the hat pins did the work. And on Mrs. James Williams' face was recorded a little library of the world's best thoughts in three volumes. Volume number one contained the belief that James Williams was about the right sort of thing. Volume number two was an essay on the world, declaring it to be a very excellent place. Volume number three disclosed the belief that in occupying the highest seat in a rubberneck auto, they were traveling the pace that passes all understanding. James Williams, you would have guessed, was about 24. It would gratify you to know that your estimate was so accurate. He was exactly 23 years, 11 months, and 29 days old. He was well-built, active, strong-jawed, good-natured, and rising. He was on his wedding trip. Dear kind fairy, please cut out those orders for money and 40-horsepower touring cars and fame and new growth of hair and the presidency of the boat club. Instead of any of them, turn backward. Oh, turn backward and give us just a teeny-weeny bit of our wedding trip over again. Just an hour, dear fairy, so we can remember how the grass and poplar trees looked and the bow of those bonnet strings tied beneath her chin, even if it was the hat pins that did the work. Can't do it? Very well. Hurry up with that touring car and the oil stock, then. Just in front of Mrs. James Williams sat a girl in a loose tan jacket and a straw hat adorned with grapes and roses. Only in dreams and milliner shops do we, alas, gather grapes and roses at one swipe. This girl gazed with large blue eyes, credulous, when the megaphone man roared his doctrine that millionaires were things about which we should be concerned. Between blasts, she resorted to Epictetian philosophy in the form of pepsin chewing gum. At this girl's right hand sat a young man about 24. He was well-built, active, strong-jawed, and good-natured. But if his description seems to follow that of James Williams, divest it of anything Cloverdalian. This man belonged to hard streets and sharp corners. He looked keenly about him, seeming to begrudge the asphalt under the feet of those upon whom he looked down from his perch. While the megaphone barks at a famous hostelry, let me whisper you through the low-tuned cardiophone to sit tight, for now things are about to happen and the great city will close over them again as over a scrap of ticker tape floating down from the den of a broad street bear. The girl in the tan jacket twisted around to view the pilgrims on the last seat. The other passengers she had absorbed. The seat behind her was her bluebeard's chamber. Her eyes met those of Mrs. James Williams. 
Between two ticks of a watch, they exchanged their life's experiences, histories, hopes, and fancies. And all, mind you, with the eye, before two men could have decided whether to draw a steel or borrow a match. The bride leaned forward low. She and the girls spoke rapidly together, their tongues moving quickly like those of two serpents, a comparison that is not meant to go further. Two smiles and a dozen nods closed the conference. And now, in the broad, quiet avenue in front of the rubberneck car, a man in dark clothes stood with uplifted hand. From the sidewalk, another hurried to join him. The girl in the fruitful hat quickly seized her companion by the arm and whispered in his ear. That young man exhibited proof of ability to act promptly. Crouching low, he slid over the edge of the car, hung lightly for an instant, and then disappeared. Half a dozen of the top riders observed his feet, wonderingly, but made no comment, deeming it prudent not to express surprise at what might be the conventional manner of alighting in this bewildering city. The truant passenger dodged a hansom and then floated past, like a leaf on a stream, between a furniture van and a florist's delivery wagon. The girl in the tan jacket turned again and looked in the eyes of Mrs. James Williams. Then she faced about and sat still while the rubberneck auto stopped at the flash of the badge under the coat of the plainclothes man. "'What's eating you?' demanded the megaphonist, abandoning his professional discourse for pure English. "'Keep her at anchor for a minute,' ordered the officer. "'There's a man on board we want, a Philadelphia burglar called Pinky Maguire. There he is in the back seat. Look out for the side, Donovan.' Donovan went to the hind wheel and looked up at James Williams. "'Come down, old sport,' he said pleasantly. "'We've got you. Back to Sleepy Town for yours. "'It ain't a bad idea hiding on a rubberneck, though. I'll remember that.' Softly through the megaphone came the advice of the conductor. Better step off, sir, and explain. The car must proceed on its tour. James Williams belonged among the level heads. With necessary slowness, he picked his way through the passengers down the steps at the front of the car. His wife followed, but she first turned her eyes and saw the escaped tourist glide from behind the furniture van and slip behind a tree on the edge of the park, not 50 feet away. Descended to the ground, James Williams faced his captors with a smile. He was thinking what a good story he would have to tell in Cloverdale about having been mistaken for a burglar. The rubberneck coach lingered out of respect for its patrons. What could be a more interesting sight than this? My name is James Williams of Cloverdale, Missouri, he said kindly, so that they would not be too greatly mortified. I have letters here that will show... You'll come with us, please, announced the plainclothes man. Pinky McGuire's description fits you like flannel washed in hot suds. A detective saw you on the rubberneck up at Central Park and phoned down to take you in. Do your explaining at the station house. James Williams' wife, his bride of two weeks, looked him in the face with a strange, soft radiance in her eyes and a flush on her cheeks, looked him in the face and said, Go with them quietly, Pinky, and maybe it'll be in your favor. And then, as the glaring at Gotham car rolled away, she turned and threw a kiss. His wife threw a kiss at someone high up on the seats of the rubberneck. Your girl gives you good advice, McGuire, said Donovan. Come on now. And then madness descended upon and occupied James Williams. He pushed his hat far up on the back of his head. My wife seems to think I am a burglar, he said recklessly. I never heard of her being crazy, therefore I must be. And if I'm crazy, they can't do anything to me for killing you two fools in my madness. Whereupon he resisted arrest so cheerfully and industriously that cops had to be whistled for, and afterwards the reserves, to disperse a few thousand delighted spectators.
At the station house, the desk sergeant asked for his name. Uh, McDoodle, the pink, or Pinky, the brute, I forget which, was James Williams' answer. But you can bet I'm a burglar. Don't leave that out. And you might add that it took five of them to pluck the pink. I'd especially like to have that in the records. In an hour came Mrs. James Williams with Uncle Thomas of Madison Avenue in a respect-compelling motor car and proofs of the hero's innocence. For all the world like the third act of a drama backed by an automobile manufacturing company. After the police had sternly reprimanded James Williams for imitating a copyrighted burglar and given him as honorable a discharge as the department was capable of, Mrs. Williams rearrested him and swept him into an angle of the station house. James Williams regarded her with one eye. He always said that Donovan closed the other while somebody was holding down his good right hand. Never before had he given her a word of reproach or of reproof. If you can explain, he began rather stiffly, why you... Dear, she interrupted, listen, it was an hour's pain and trial for you. I did it for her. I mean the girl who spoke to me on the coach. I was so happy, Jim, so happy with you that I didn't dare to refuse that happiness to another. Jim, they were married only this morning, those two, and I wanted him to get away. While they were struggling with you, I saw him slip from behind his tree and hurry across the park. That's all of it, dear. I had to do it. Thus does one sister of the plain gold band know another who stands in the enchanted light that shines but once and briefly for each one. By rice and satin bows does mere man become aware of weddings, but bride knoweth bride at the glance of an eye. And between them, swiftly passes comfort and meaning in a language that man and widows wot not of. Now that's one confused bunch of people. That could never happen around a place like the upper Madawaska Valley, you might think. First off, we don't have those kinds of fancy tour omnibuses that once glided along the streets of New York City in the early 20th century. Secondly, our springtime romances tend to end in marriages that stick, or at least they have a certain je ne sais quality where a runaway bride and groom don't end up on the lamb a few short days after the wedding. Still, O'Henry does capture the chaos and beauty of married life as it goes through what many people around here call their annual spring cleaning. Here's our final O'Henry story read by Jeff Bowman. It's called Between Rounds, and probably is the closest O. Henry ever came to agreeing with T.S. Eliot's idea of April being the cruelest month. The May moon shone bright upon the private boarding house of Mrs. Murphy. By reference to the almanac, a large amount of territory will be discovered upon which its rays also fell. Spring was in its heyday, with hay fever soon to follow. The parks were green with new leaves and buyers for the western and southern trade. Flowers and summer resort agents were blowing. The air and answers to Lawson were growing milder. And hand organs, fountains, and pinochle were playing everywhere. The windows of Mrs. Murphy's boarding house were open. A group of boarders were seated on the high stoop upon round flat mats like German pancakes. In one of the second-floor front windows, Mrs. McCaskey awaited her husband. Supper was cooling on the table. Its heat went into Mrs. McCaskey. At nine, Mr. McCaskey came home. He carried his coat on his arm and his pipe in his teeth. 
and he apologized for disturbing the borders on the steps as he selected spots of stone between them on which to set his size nine with D's. As he opened the door of his room, he received a surprise. Instead of the usual stove lid or potato masher for him to dodge, came only words. Mr. McCaskey reckoned that the benign May moon had softened the breast of his spouse. I heard ye came the oral substitutes for kitchenware. Ye can apologize to riffraff of the streets for setting your unhandy feet on the tails of their frocks, but ye'd walk on the neck of your wife for the length of a clothesline without so much as a kiss-me-foot. And I'm sure it's that long from rubbering out the windy for ye and the victuals cold, such as there's money to buy after drinking up your wages at Gallagher's every Saturday evening, and the gas man here twice today for his. Woman, said Mr. McCaskey, dashing his coat and hat upon a chair, the noise of ye is an insult to me appetite. When ye run down politeness, ye take the mortar from between the bricks of the foundations of society. "'Tis no more than exercising the acrimony of a gentleman "'when ye ask the descent of ladies blocking the way "'for stepping between them. "'Will ye bring the pig's face of ye out of the window "'and see to the food?' "'Mrs. McCaskey arose heavily and went to the stove. "'There was something in her manner that warned Mr. McCaskey. "'When the corners of her mouth went down suddenly like a barometer, "'it usually foretold a fall of crockery and tinware.' Pig's face, is it, said Mrs. McCaskey, and hurled a stewpan full of bacon and turnips at her lord. Mr. McCaskey was no novice at repartee. He knew what should follow the entree. On the table was a roast sirloin of pork garnished with shamrocks. He retorted with this, and drew the appropriate return of a bread pudding in an earthen dish. A hunk of Swiss cheese, accurately thrown by her husband, struck Mrs. McCaskey below one eye, when she replied with a well-aimed coffee-pot full of a hot, black, semi-fragrant liquid, the battle, according to courses, should have ended. But Mr. McCaskey was no fifty-cent table de hotel. Let cheap bohemians consider coffee the end, if they would. Let them make that faux pas. He was foxier still. Finger bowls were not beyond the compass of his experience. They were not to be had in the pension Murphy, but their equivalent was at hand. Triumphantly, he sent the graniteware wash basin at the head of his matrimonial adversary. Mrs. McCaskey dodged in time. She reached for a flat iron with which, as a sort of cordial, she hoped to bring the gastronomical duel to a close. But a loud wailing scream downstairs caused both her and Mr. McCaskey to pause in a sort of involuntary armistice. On the sidewalk at the corner of the house, Policeman Clary was standing with one ear upturned, listening to the crash of household utensils. "'Tis John McCaskey and his missus at it again,' meditated the policeman. "'I wonder, shall I go up and stop the row?' "'I will not.' Married folks they are, and few pleasures they have. It will not last long. Sure, they'll have to borrow more dishes to keep it up with. And just then came the loud scream below stairs, betokening fear or dire extremity. "'Tis probably the cat,' said Policeman Clary, and walked hastily in the other direction. The boarders on the steps were flustered. 
Mr. Toomey, an insurance solicitor by birth and an investigator by profession, went inside to analyze the scream. He returned with the news that Mrs. Murphy's little boy, Mike, was lost. Following the messenger, out bounced Mrs. Murphy, 200 pounds in tears and hysterics, clutching the air and howling to the sky for the loss of 30 pounds of freckles and mischief. Bathos truly. But Mr. Toomey sat down at the side of Miss Purdy, millinery, and their hands came together in sympathy. The two old maids, Mrs. Walsh, who claimed every day about the noise in the halls, inquired immediately if anyone had looked behind the clock. Major Grigg, who sat by his fat wife on the top step, arose and buttoned his coat. "'Little one lost!' he exclaimed. "'I'll scour the city!' His wife never allowed him out after dark. But now, she said, Go, Ludwig, in a baritone voice. Whoever can look upon that mother's grief without springing to her relief has a heart of stone. Uh, Give me some thirty or sixty cents, my love, said the major. Lost children sometimes stray far. I may need car fare. Old man Denny, hall room, fourth floor back, who sat on the lowest step, trying to read a paper by the street lamp, turned over a page to follow up the article about the carpenter's strike. Mrs. Murphy shrieked to the moon, Oh, Mike, for God's sakes, where's me little bit of a boy? When did you last see him? asked old man Denny, with one eye on the report of the Building Trades League. "'Twas yesterday, or maybe four hours ago, I don't know. But it's lost he is, me little boy Mike. He was playing on the sidewalk only this morning. Or was it Wednesday?' I'm not busy with work, tis hard to keep up with dates. But I've looked the house over, from top to cellar, and it's gone he is. Oh, for the love of heaven. Silent, grim, colossal, the big city has ever stood against its revilers. They call it hard as iron. They say that no pulse of pity beats in its bosom. They compare its streets with lonely forests and deserts of lava. But beneath the hard crust of the lobster is found a delectable and luscious food. Uh, Perhaps a different simile would have been wiser. Still, nobody should take offense. We would call no one a lobster without good and sufficient claws. No calamity so touches the common heart of humanity as does the straying of a little child. Their feet are so uncertain and feeble, the way is so steep and strange. Major Griggs hurried down to the corner and up the avenue into Billy's place. Give me a rye high, he said to the server. Haven't seen a bow-legged, dirty-faced little devil of a six-year-old lost kid around here anywhere, have you? Mr. Toomey retained Miss Purdy's hand on the steps. Think of that dear little babe, said Miss Purdy, lost from his mother's side, perhaps already fallen beneath the iron hooves of galloping steeds. Oh, isn't it dreadful? Ain't that right, agreed Mr. Tooney, squeezing her hand. Say I start out and up look for him. Perhaps, said Miss Purdy, you should. But, oh, Mr. Toomey, you are so dashing, so reckless. Suppose in your enthusiasm some accident should befall you, then, then what? Old man Denny read on about the arbitration agreement with one finger on the lines. In the second-floor front, Mr. and Mrs. McCaskey came to the window to recover their second wind. 
Mr. McCaskey was scooping turnips out of his vest with a crooked forefinger, and his lady was wiping an eye that the salt of the roast pork had not benefited. They heard the outcry below and thrust their heads out of the window. "'Tis little Mike is lost,' said Mrs. McCaskey in a hushed voice. "'The beautiful little troublemaking angel of a gossoon.' "'A bit of a boy mislaid,' said Mr. McCaskey, leaning out of the window. "'Why now, that's bad enough entirely. "'The children, they'd be different. "'If t'was a woman, I'd be willing, "'for they leave peace behind him when they go.' "'Disregarding the thrust, Mrs. McCaskey caught her husband's arm. "'John,' she said sentimentally, "'Mrs. Murphy's boy is lost, "'and tis a great city for losing little boys. Six years old he was. "'John, tis the same age our little boy would have been "'if we'd had one six years ago.' "'We never did,' said Mr. McCaskey, "'lingering with the fact. "'But if we had, John, "'think what sorrow would be in our hearts this night "'with our little failing run away "'and stolen in the city nowheres at all.' "'You talk foolishness,' said Mr. McCaskey. "'Tis Pat he'd be named after me old father in Cantrim.' "'You lie,' says Mrs. McCaskey without anger. "'Me brother was worth ten dozen bog-trotting McCaskies. "'After him would the boy be named.' She leaned over the windowsill and looked down at the hurrying and bustle below. "'John,' said Mrs. McCaskey softly, "'I'm sorry I was hasty with you.' "'Twas hasty pudding, as you say,' said her husband.' And hurry up, turnips, and get a move on your coffee. Twas what ye call a quick lunch, all right, and tell no lie. Mrs. McCaskey slipped her arm inside her husband's and took his rough hand in hers. Listen at the crying of poor Mrs. Murphy, she said. Tis an awful thing for a bit of a boy to be lost in this great big city. If twas our little failing, John, I'd be breaking me heart. Awkwardly, Mr. McCaskey withdrew his hand, but he laid it around the nearing shoulder of his wife. "'Tis foolishness, of course,' said he, "'but I'd be cut up some meself if our little Pat was kidnapped or anything. There never was any children for us. Sometimes I've been ugly and hard with you, Judy. Forget it.' They leaned together and looked down at the heart drama being acted below. Long they sat thus, People surged along the sidewalk, crowding, questioning, filling the air with rumors and inconsequent surmises. Mrs. Murphy plowed back and forth in their midst, like a soft mountain down which plunged an audible cataract of tears. Couriers came and went. Loud voices and a renewed uproar were raised in front of the boarding house. "'What's up now, Judy?' asked Mr. McCaskey. "'Tis Mrs. Murphy's voice,' she said. She says she's after finding little Mike asleep behind the roll of old linoleum under the bed in her room. Mr. McCaskey laughed loudly. Well, that's your failing, he shouted sardonically. Devil a bit would a pat have done that trick. If the boy we never had is strayed and stole, by the powers call him failing, and see him hide out under the bed like a mangy pup. Mrs. McCaskey arose heavily and went towards the dish closet with the corners of her mouth drawn down. Policeman Clary came back around the corner as the crowd dispersed. Surprised, he upturned an ear toward the McCaskey apartment, where the crash of irons and chinaware and the ring of hurled kitchen utensils seemed as loud as before. 
Policeman Clary took out his timepiece. By the deported snakes, he exclaimed. John McCaskey and his lady had been fighting for an hour and a quarter by the watch. The missus could give him forty pounds weight. Strength to his arm. Policeman Clary strolled back around the corner. Old man Denny folded his paper and hurried up the steps, just as Mrs. Murphy was about to lock the door for the night. And there you have it. O. Henry's Spring Thaw, a show dedicated not only to showing you why April is not the cruelest month, but to some of O. Henry's best short stories that capture all of springtime's verdant chaos, complete with young lovers peeking through the lilacs at each other as they go tripping, delight fantastic, and falling into the rest of their lives together as we will come to know them. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapesky, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormke, and our producer, Barry Conway, we'd like to wish you the good luck of a wonderful springtime. Good day, and God bless. Bye.